This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Life would be easier sometimes if there were a manual for it, wouldn't it be? Owner's manuals. Most times, we toss them out when we buy something. But when something doesn't work right, you wish you had it. Well, you can Google the problem, but you have to weigh through a lot of junk, people's theories, hacks, attempts. But what does the manufacturer say about it? That expert advice is always in the manual. Some owner's manuals are pretty simple, telling us to open the box, plug it in, and voila, there's not much more to it. Others, though, can be more detailed. For example, the owner's manual that came with your car. The average car manual takes over six hours to read through, and some can take up to 12 hours. There are so many features and systems to walk you through. When it comes to life and faith, the Bible as a whole is our manual, but the verses we'll look at on this episode and the next few episodes in Colossians 3, I would say they've been a manual for Christian living, at least for me. I turn to them whenever I feel fleshly or I'm not living right according to scripture or my patience is running thin. I might even call these my Wednesday verses because I find myself coming to them often by midweek. I start off the week filled from Sunday, focused, eyes on Jesus, but after a few days, man, it can be hard to live as a Christian. These are instructions that I needed often on the mission field in Colossians 3, dealing with hard things and hard people in hard situations. I found that I turned to them regularly in marriage once I got married. I needed the Spirit's guidance in just how to figure out being a husband, something I'm still turning to help with within these verses. I realize I need to review them repeatedly for my job as I need direction on how to live out my faith in an everyday context. And I comb through them continually just to make it through the day in this world. I found them to be an owner's manual for right living and something to turn to continually to refresh in the basics. The believers in Colossae needed such guidance where they were being bombarded with talk of things like higher knowledge and philosophy and methods and ways that were Jesus plus something else. But this esoteric and philosophy and spiritual musings, many were missing the point. When the rubber meets the road, walking with Jesus requires daily, consistent, obedient living, working out our salvation in practical ways. And while the philosophers were caught up with their muddy musings and doing the mental gymnastics of their confusing teachings, Paul was encouraging himself and the Colossians and us as well to break out the manual and figure out how it all works practically. The religiosity of that age and ours as well, it will surely miss this and will likely contradict these instructions, promoting instead an alternative approach to going through life, dealing with others, and perceiving ourselves in this life. In our last look at the book of Colossians on the podcast, we saw that Paul told them to put to death certain sinful tendencies they had, since the old man had been crucified with Jesus. And since God's wrath was stirred over such a living, that was a direct contradiction to what we were created for, for God's glory. And he also told us to put off certain choices in our day-to-day -day Christian living, choosing instead a godly response to the situations and circumstances we find ourselves in, rather than the initial carnal responses we might naturally consider expressing. Well, on this episode, we come to this key passage today for troubleshooting. When life is out of whack, there is probably something written in these verses to get things running right once more, which is one reason I personally find the need to turn to them time and time again. So with that, let's refer to what I call the manual in Colossians 3 verses 12 and 13.
At the high school I used to teach at, lunch was short, really short, like 25 minutes short, during which time everyone who was eating at school had to wait in line, get through the line, and chow down their food to get to fifth hour after lunch. And while I brought my own lunch a lot of the time, some days if I was going to be eating, it was going to be school lunch that day. And even if I rushed my pre-lunch students out the door at the lunch bell, it didn't matter. The lunch line was already making its way out of the lunch area into the commons. And those at the end of the line would probably spend most of the lunch hour getting through the line and just a small window of time enjoying, or at least trying to enjoy, their meal. But there was a teacher privilege. It was an unwritten but accepted rule that teachers got to cut to the front of the lunch line. Yep, bypass all the hungry students, make your way to the front, and get your meal. And though I felt bad at times enacting this privilege... Having more time for lunch was a privilege I was willing to cash in on, allowing me not only time to chew my meal properly, in contrast to those at the end of the line, but maybe even affording me a few precious minutes to make photocopies, return a few emails, or even relieve my bladder after having held it since the second class period of the day. It was a privilege that served me well under the circumstances. Last time we looked at the Colossians in chapter 3, Paul reminded them that as believers in Christ, they were indeed privileged. As he wrote to them in verse 11, they had put on the new man who was renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This type of privilege was completely fair, Paul wrote, creating a level playing field for any and all who would come to Jesus, regardless of what the world may have desired to identify them as. Tearing down cultural and religious and physical and socioeconomic and any other societal division, the believer who was in Christ was flat out privileged. And it's this privilege that Paul equips them with in Colossians 3 verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, Paul's about to open the manual for Christian living here, but before he does, he lays out the privilege they have that will let them live out any and everything he'll write about in the rest of this chapter. Their privilege, that they were the elect of God, that they were holy, and that they were beloved. Therefore, Paul writes, because of these things, he says, because you are the elect of God, because you have been counted holy in Jesus, because you are God's beloved, loved with a love that has already been proven, therefore, you are indeed privileged enough to cut to the front of the line and to be able to walk in the things that we will look at as we jump deeper into this chapter and this podcast and the next few podcasts. But let's chew on each of these privileges for a moment. Therefore, as the elect of God, the elect of God. Many times this was used to refer to Israel. The Old Testament calls the Israelites elect when it refers to them as the chosen people or or the people of God or those faithful to what was a divine call. And we see such themes in books like Deuteronomy and in Isaiah. Here's an example from Isaiah 45, God speaking through the prophet to the nation of Israel. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name and the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. 
The Lord continually declaring his promises and faithfulness to these people, even in seasons and periods of disobedience and rejection, reminding them of his covenant, which he would uphold. Now, the fact that Paul tells the Colossians that one of their privileges is that they were the elect of God, it's interesting. The Colossian church was a Gentile church mostly. And Paul just wrote in verse 11 that in Christ there was no Jew nor Greek. And though I do not believe that the church replaced Israel in the covenant God made, perhaps Paul wants them and us to realize just how secure we can be in God's commitment to us in Jesus Christ. Because God had a history of being faithful to his elect people, the Jews. Even in their shortcomings and their failures and the rejections, he always held up his end of things. And here in Colossians, the life we are being called to as Christians and the things in this manual in the next few verses, they are hard and we won't be successful always. And we will fall short and fail. And when we do, we can feel completely discouraged and begin to have doubts about our standing with God, or maybe even wonder if we really even know him, because after all, a true believer wouldn't be messing up the same way we seem to be, right? Well, this reference to them as the elect of God, perhaps it's a reminder to these Gentile believers in advance that they won't always be on their A game, and they will at times, many times, not live out their faith flawlessly. Because the things in these verses can be very challenging to live out, especially all the time. And that even if they fall short, they are still the elect of God, chosen by him in Christ. And though they might be faithless, he will remain faithful. Not only is Paul encouraging them that they are the elect of God, but we read, therefore, because you are holy, holy, they were set apart, different from the world no longer for ordinary use, but reserved for something higher, something holy. Moses reminding the Israelites what God called upon them was in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And as believers in Christ, we have the same calling to be holy, as Peter writes. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In this sea of humanity, the believer is called to be set apart, something different, living a holy life. Now, this manual, these verses Paul is about to give the Colossians and to us, they call us to respond differently to the rest of the world and respond differently than the rest of the world. Some companies have interesting guidelines in their employee manuals, and they ask their employees to be set apart in certain things that may not go along with the company's goals or images. And though certain behaviors or responses may be totally normal in the rest of the world, the manuals guide them to be different. For example, apparently those who work at Disney World must always point with two fingers or their entire hand. The gesture is known as the Disney point. Well, why this guideline? Well, in some cultures, pointing with one finger is considered rude. And since Disney World hosts guests from all over the world, the resort makes sure to train its employees to be sensitive to these cultural differences. Now, it may be totally fine for others to point with one finger, but for those working there, well, there's a different standard. And so it is here. Paul reminds them before giving them these instructions about how to live for Christ, that they are a holy people. And though the rest of the world may live and react and respond however they feel or whatever feels right to them, there's a different standard for those who follow Christ. 
And we are called to be holy in all that we do, all that we think, all that we say, and even what we feel, something the Holy Spirit can empower us to do. So Paul has told them that they were elect and that they were holy. And the third privilege he wants them to remember, therefore, because you are beloved. Beloved, to have a preference for, for wish well to, to regard the welfare of. You see, when one is beloved, there's an unconditional care and covering and fondness for them. This is important for Paul to remind them of before he dives into the logistics of this manual, because the things we are called to be will be a challenge and we will fall short. And not if, but when we do, we may be worried that we have fallen out of God's favor. But the truth is that we are his beloved. He loves us with an unconditional love, regardless of our performance. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We do not earn God's love by being on our best behavior or performing perfectly all the time. We are loved by him. And therefore, we live out of that place of security and love, not earning God's favor, but because we have his favor, even when we don't get it right 100% of the time. Not only that, but we can then love out of a place of being loved. The NIV and the ESV write in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. In this list that we are about to read, it requires us to love others exceptionally, to respond in love in every situation, regardless of how we're feeling or naturally inclined. We can't love others right until we know ourselves the unconditional love of God. We can't pour out what hasn't first been poured out into us. So Paul affirms to them before he jumps into the manual, you are beloved. God proved this to us on the cross. And it's in the sure confidence of those of who we are in Christ. We are his beloved. Think about those three things for just a second before we move on. Do you see how privileged the believer is? You are the elect of God secure, his commitment to you not wavering based on performance or successes. You are holy, called to live differently and empowered to do so with the source of the Holy Spirit. You are beloved, completely loved, perfectly loved, proven once and for all by Jesus's death for you on the cross. What a place of privilege we have as followers of Jesus. But for those who don't know him, well, you stand on your own standing. Your righteousness is only good as your performance, and you fall far short. You're not elect. You're not holy. You're not beloved. Even though God loves you, he loved the world so much, we don't enter into these privileges until we know his son, until we confess that we are sinners, receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, and then walk in the newness of life, having been born again. That's when we can say we finally have these privileges. So now as Paul lays out the manual for how we are to live, it comes from a place of possibility. With all the privileges we have in Christ, this is truly doable. So let's read verses 12 and 13, then pick it apart piece by piece. We read, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. These are the things that we are told to put on. That's a contrast to what we saw previously when we looked at all the things that we were to put off. There are things that are not okay to wear as believers, but there are things that we should put on as believers. I did a home project recently that involved some painting. And after coming home from work, I threw on my painting clothes. 
I have an old pair of jeans, probably circa 2005, that are no longer in style. And at some point, they became my painting pants. And they have all the shades of paint, stains, varnishes, you name it, on them to prove it. And then I have my painting shirt, a long-sleeved, light gray cotton shirt that also is covered in splatters and spills and smudges of various colors and hues of paint. See, I put off my work clothes, and then I put on my paint clothes. I do my dirty work, and I don't care about getting paint on those clothes. But then once I'm done with the dirty work, I put off those paint clothes. They're no longer appropriate for anything in life, and I wouldn't want to be seen out and about in them, except maybe at the hardware store. I certainly would never go to work in them, so I put them off and then put on what is right for my job. Paul already told them in verse 8 that they needed to put off certain things, things that were not fitting for the Christian, putting off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and that they had put on the new man who was renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created us. And here, Paul continues on with some of those details. What does that putting on of the new man look like? If I come in from painting and my wife tells me to put on something nice, I'm taking her out to dinner, I might ask her to help me by telling me what should I put on? What would be best for the occasion? What should I put on? And based upon the event or the occasion, I'll put on something better suited than my paint clothes so as not to embarrass myself nor my wife. And so it goes with the encouragement to put these things on. We don't wake up daily already clothed in these things. There's something we have to consciously or subconsciously by the power of the Holy Spirit be able to put on as we move about life. So we see there, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on, first on the list, tender mercies. Put on a heart of compassion, of pity, of mercy, and let it be tender. We live in a very tough world full of competition and criticism and the scrutiny of others. There's a lot of judgment, and it's very easy to misunderstand what others are going through or where they're coming from. Balance that out with lots of entitlement, people taking advantage of situations and others, and it can be hard not to have our guard up, can it? The first page of the manual here, Paul instructs us to put on tender mercies. When something is tender, it is soft, it's raw, it feels things. After hurting yourself, the bruise or the joint or the area impacted, it can be tender. You feel it quite a bit more than you normally would, and you wince in pain as it is ultra-sensitive, more so than normal. When someone is tender, I think of someone being extra gentle, like with a newborn baby, tenderly holding it or stroking it softly in a soothing, calming, gentle way. Put on tender mercies. In a world that is harsh and hard and critical, that looks to fight and win, to put others in their place and keep them at bay, the follower of Jesus is to put on compassion, an authentic, tender pity for others that considers their plight and can respond in their best interest. This can be a challenge to do in a world that is so unrighteous to respond in compassion. James and John thought they were doing the right thing when they came to Jesus in Luke 9, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. Jesus was headed that way, and they were to get everything set up for his arrival, and the verses go on. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. Because there was such animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews, they found out that they were on their way to Jerusalem, and they didn't want them anywhere near them. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them as Elijah did? 
they were so mad about this injustice. How offensive. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to die for them, for their sins, even of the rejecting Samaritans. And they were rejecting him. And though James and John were responding what they felt was righteous indignation, Jesus flipped the script. But he turned and rebuked them. He rebuked James and John and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. This was the tender mercy that Jesus was asking us to put on. In a Christ-rejecting world, not to lose sight of having the unconditional heart of God, which can be so hard to do. I think one of the clearest portrayals of tender mercies in the life of Jesus is found in John chapter 8. There is very little that is tender in this scene. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and the scribes and the Pharisees cause a stir and disrupt, throwing there in the middle a woman caught in the very act of adultery. You can imagine them grabbing her by the arm. She's struggling out of the shame to get, get away. They strong-arming her from wherever they found her, pushing her into the center of things to stand there before Jesus, and these religious leaders holding stones above their heads, ready to throw them upon this woman when given the green light to do so. It is a rough scene. I imagine dust flying, shouting, struggling, scratches even. Where are the tender mercies? They enter when we see clearly and plainly that Jesus raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Tender mercies when Jesus does not publicly shame them for their sin, but calls them out nonetheless, allowing them to slip away one by one to go and repent tender mercies as the harsh condemnation of the law is trumped by God's mercy and grace. Tender mercies that consider the repercussions of a quick and rash response and yield to a patient and yet much more effective approach that gets to each and every heart in that scene. Putting on tender mercies is not a natural response. We want to get defensive or accusatory, to put others in their place and to brush them off when they are. When they're inconveniencing us in their plight or situation or choices or lot in life, we want to put them in their place. But that is where the putting on takes place. Pausing long enough to take a breath and to put on the heart and mind of Jesus and extend tender compassion, sensitive to the need, and bringing hope and healing where it's needed most. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on kindness. That's the next in the list. Kindness is doing something good for another, even if it is not expected or required, and it is something this world needs so much of. Jesus was so kind, and people noticed it, especially in a day and age when religiosity and the Pharisee had lost any human and personal touch. One of my favorite stories of kindness is when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, John chapter 2. Jesus and his disciples are at the wedding, and a very embarrassing thing happens. They run out of wine. This cultural faux pas could ruin the entire wedding. But Jesus performs his first miracle, turning water into wine. And it's noted, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. A kind act by Jesus, turning this couple's wedding from a disaster to one that will be remembered. 
Paul challenges the Colossians to put on kindness, to get dressed in it, because when it happens, you want to be ready for it. We can be so busy in life that stopping and taking time to be kind goes to the wayside. And that is when life truly becomes the rat race, when people stop noticing one another. Jesus noticed the person in the crowd, the specific need that rose up, those that were not planned or not on the agenda for the day. But taking notice and being kind, it communicates that I see you. And God sees us, doesn't he? Noticing the smallest details, like even the number of hairs on our heads. We're called as followers of Jesus to be kind in this world, to notice the little things, and to show people that God cares. I stumbled on a website called Six Seconds, and it has suggestions for how to be kind to strangers. Things like say please and thank you, let someone go through the door first, and hold the door open for someone. Buy a box of cookies and offer them around. Buy a sandwich for the person asking for cash in front of the grocery store, or buy a stranger lunch, or pay for the toll of the person behind you on the toll road. Welcome new people to your neighborhood or school. Smile at every stranger at the mall. The list goes on. It's very long. Suggestions for ways to be kind in the moment. Well, we don't need a website to know how or when to be kind because we have the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus within us that knows how to be kind and supernaturally so. Knowing ways that people need to be shown kindness, ways that no one else could know but by the Holy Spirit. Put on kindness, get dressed daily, and ask the Spirit to show you ways to be kind and expressions that will impact this world for His kingdom. Not just because you're a nice person or because you looked up some cool thing to do on a website and you planned it and calculated it, but that kind of kindness does go very far. But because in the moment you heard the Holy Spirit saying, be kind in this way, this is what this person needs most right now. And it's not just being kind to strangers, but almost more so to those closest to us. We can begin to just expect things of one another or take advantage of those we're closest to. And kindness is something we no longer extend because, well, we're already doing so much for one another all the time anyway, right? I mean, we work hard enough and serving one another day in and day out. Being kind to one another isn't something that's really expected of us, is it? Put it on, Paul says. It's part of the outfit. It's outlined in the manual. Out of the privileges that we have as a believer, we have much motivation to be kind. So we saw the need to put on tender mercies and kindness, and now we see the list continues. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on humility and meekness. Let's look at these two together. Humility is having a lowliness of mind about oneself, a sober understanding of who you are, one that has not bought into the image that you're better than you really are. Humility, it's always been a problem. Ever since Adam and Eve bought into the lie and felt like they could be like God, wiggling out of their true place in the order of things in the garden, created in the likeness of God to worship him, to reflect him, and to serve him, instead wrestling to get themselves on the throne. And the sin of pride squashed all humility. And it's been almost impossible to get anyone to stay humble. It's like when you take something out of their original package or the container, they never seem to go back in. Almost impossible to put them back in. Like that tent that you bought, all contained in a little zippered bag, but once you use it, you can never seem to stuff it all back in. It's out for good, sprawling awkwardly in your garage or your storage. So it goes with humility and pride. Mankind sprung out from his natural state of humility. 
bought into the lie of the serpent, sought to become like God, believing that they deserved it, entitled to it, but something that they could never achieve. Putting ourselves on the throne, the ego at the center of the universe, and that all else should revolve around us. This is heightened in an age of social media and filters, posting all the best and only the best, and making anything that we do share with the world a better version than what it really is in reality, lest they peer behind the curtain and see us for who we really are and reject us in disappointment for what they really see and find. So we filtered up. We put on the best, sacrificing humility and hoping that no one will find out. Put it back on, says Paul. Put back on humility and flaunt it. True heartfelt humility that knows it is a sinner in need of grace. One who is weak who needs to be made strong. One of the foolish things of the wise with no natural ability to confound the wise. But we fear, like the emperor's new clothes, to be exposed for what we really are. But put it on, Paul says. It's what the world needs and it's what the world finds refreshing. It's a conscious decision each day to put on humility, to reset and recalibrate ourselves to who we really are in the eternal scheme of things, to remember that God doesn't need us to accomplish his work, to remember that people don't need us, even if we've convinced them that they do, to remember that we can be replaced in most of what we do in life, to remember that we are not the most important thing in the universe. And that's not meant to discourage you, but to free you so that God can work through you and be glorified in you. For by putting on humility each day, we put on even more. We drape upon ourselves the grace of God as a byproduct. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What an amazing thing. We choose to put on humility, then God drapes us in his grace. Grace for our lives, grace to pass on, grace for all that we don't have and we don't deserve. And with humility, we are to put on meekness. Meekness goes hand in hand with humility. Meekness is power under restraint. It's the ability to hold back, to not use all that we have or that we could use in order to elevate or prefer others or leave room for them. Meekness derails any entitlement that we may feel and instead allows us to stop and consider and not to rush ahead of God. A great picture of meekness is David in the Old Testament. Saul has been rejected as the king of Israel, but he is not giving up the throne easily. And God has spoken. And the shepherd boy David is anointed the next king of Israel. The title has been given, the anointing declared, but in meekness, David will not rush to the throne. He's waiting for Saul to lead that throne. Even when David is given the opportunity, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, Saul and his men know that David and his men are hiding in an area called En Gedi. So they go looking for them, probably to take care of David and his men. And at some point, Saul needs to go to the restroom. So he goes into a cave to relieve himself, the nearest porta potty available. Now there in that vulnerable position, David's guys tell him, It's time, David. Get Saul now while you can. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. And so David inches closer and cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. But immediately, he feels conviction over it, saying, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And once Saul leaves, David goes out to Saul, bows before Saul, and says to him, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, 
This day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, the corner of your robe is in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I, I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it? Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. In meekness. David would not use his own position for personal gain, even in that cave there. But he would let the Lord make his name great, if it were ever to be great. David would eventually become king, but it would be the Lord who would finally put him there. Notice, even in that passage, he calls Saul the anointed of the Lord. Twice, he calls him his father, showing respect and humility towards him. David was to focus on being faithful to God and growing in character and keeping his integrity. And these are things that we are to put on each day. A restraining belt that has us slow down and wait upon God in meekness, rather than rushing ahead to gain the whole world, but at the expense of what? And this ties into the next one. Once we've put on humility and meekness, it then says to put on long-suffering. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on long-suffering. Long-suffering, the word means patience, endurance, constancy, steadfastness, perseverance, slowness in avenging wrongs. It sets us to act and respond a little slower, to press on and go on a little longer, and gives God the time to work in his time, which is always better than ours putting this on as a believer, we acknowledge our impatience, our rush to get things done, to rush through lessons, to rush other people, and to give up and move on without needing to commit. But the manual tells us to reject this impatient desire and to put on long-suffering, a commitment to strap in for the long haul with a front row seat to let God work. We are in no rush as the people of God, for all things are in His time, according to His plan on His eternal calendar. And we can't speed up the clock or slow down the clock because God is always on time. But most of us won't stick around long enough for God to show up. So we make our own decisions. We cut corners to get ahead. We drop someone or something we're, we committed to and we get out at the first inconvenience or slightest sensation of pain or suffering. Our spiritual lives suffer. Our churches suffer. Our marriages suffer. Our families suffer. The world suffers because we won't put on long suffering. But in our on-demand world, we could all benefit from taking a deep breath, slowing down, and committing to being a bit more long-suffering, especially when it comes to our relationships with others. As Paul now expands upon long-suffering, he describes it a bit more practically where he sees a need for us to put it on. Colossians 3.13, where he articulates long-suffering in this way, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. We don't need to go far each day to practice long-suffering. He says bearing with one another, putting up with one another. Bearing, it can also mean to hold up, not to shy away or distance because their weight is growing heavy, but to bear with them just a bit more. And while that might grow wearying, in addition to finding new strength to stand up alongside them, forgive them. 
Keep your heart from growing bitter or hardened to them or callous towards them. Find room to forgive them again 70 times 7. Be there not just in presence, but also in heart. And in case we didn't hear, Paul reiterated it again, saying, No, guys, really, I mean it. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Any complaints, legitimate or imagined, real or unwarranted, bear with them and forgive them as Christ forgave you. He brings that full circle. Remember how privileged you are, elect of God, still forgiven even when you sin another time. Holy, called holy when we receive forgiveness and declared holy even when we fall short because our holiness is founded in the forgiveness that Jesus accomplished on the cross at Calvary. Beloved, loved so much by God that he smothered his forgiveness on you while you were still a sinner. Remember how Christ forgave you, Paul asks? Because I sure do, Paul says. I sure remember how Christ forgave me. That's the same type of forgiveness that you need to put on unconditional, before you deserved it, perpetual and complete. That's the forgiveness that you're asked to extend. These are the things to put on because you don't wake up each day wearing them. It takes seeking God's grace and the power of the Spirit to do so. But it's all in the manual, the life that we're called to live, a life that runs right and according to design, if we will just take seriously the charge to put it on. As we close, take a look at those verses once again. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Look at that list. There is a lot in there, and we only got through two verses. There's more to come on the coming podcasts. Now, unfortunately, most of us will treat this like a salad bar. Lots of ingredients to choose from, but maybe not all according to my liking. There are always some things at a salad bar that you really want and that are pretty popular, or that you might want to load up on your plate, and other things that you might choose to skip over. Others may dive in and load those things up, but they're just not to your liking. We can treat portions of scripture like the salad bar. We pick the items we like, we shy away or avoid the others. But can I challenge us all to put these on, all of these on, daily? Try it for the next week or so. Open the Bible first thing in the day to these passages. First, remember who you are. You are elect. You are holy. You are beloved. And consider how you came to be called those things and what your identity in those things is founded in. It's all founded in Jesus and his faithfulness to you. And then go through the manual we found in these first two verses and put each one on. And let the Spirit show you in that moment or as you go throughout the day just why it's important to have those things on. There is so much more to talk about on these subjects. In fact, we will continue on in the next podcasts as Paul caps off this list with some of the most foundational elements of the manual, critical things that need to be in place at all times. But until then, we definitely have enough to meditate upon. So Lord, thank you for all you have won for us in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. We are not worthy, Lord, to be identified with you, but we receive it thankfully. 
Lord, guide us this week, this day, even this hour to put on those things that we can put on because of the privileged position that we have in you. Privileged in position, privileged in resources, privileged in our access to you, Lord. Lord, we ask for your grace and the leading of your spirit that we might live out these things in a way that brings glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.